I think a lot of this, you know, a lot of the pathologies of sanctions um, really are rooted in the fact that we don't have a robust policy infrastructure in place for executing sanctions. You know, the White House wasn't even sure that they were going to go after VTB, you know, second largest bank in Russia. And then, you know, a week into the war, they had sanctioned the Central Bank of Russia, which is, by any measure, the largest sanctions target in modern history. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And for the past few months, we have published a ton of articles and podcast episodes analyzing and commenting on the war in Ukraine. Most of them have been centered on, or at least related to, the military aspects of that conflict. From drones to armor, from tactics to strategy, and from a precise focus on Ukraine to the wider implications for NATO. The military conduct of that war has had a substantial international component, as Ukraine's foreign supporters have supplied a wide range of weapons and equipment. But alongside providing that support, there's another role being played by the United States, its European allies, and partners around the world putting in place a massive sanctions regime targeting Russia. We're going to explore that topic on this episode. To do so, I'm joined by Edward Fishman. He is a former government official who worked extensively on sanctions policy, and he is now an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He also teaches a graduate-level seminar on economic statecraft at Columbia University, so he has a really insightful perspective on the subject of sanctions. Before we get to the conversation, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, remember you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Edward Fishman. Edward, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. My pleasure, John. It's great to be here. So I asked you to come on the podcast today to talk about sanctions and, and you know, sort of essentially economic tools of statecraft. And, you know, if we think sort of very conventionally about what constitutes modern war, what what topics fit within kind of the, the broad outlines of that subject matter, sanctions might not be one of those things that people would typically put uh, kind of uh, in that bucket. But it is clearly something that overlays on and, and touches on, has an impact on the conduct of war uh, today and is likely to, to, to do so in the future as well. So again, I'm really excited about this. I think before we begin, I wonder if I could ask you just to give listeners a sense of your background and, and, and maybe describe some of the work that you do. Sure. So uh, my background is working really in public policy in the U.S. government. I uh, worked at the Treasury Department and the State Department, also did a short stint at the Pentagon, but really revolved around finding ways to use U.S. economic and financial power to advance national security goals. So my first uh, responsibility and assignment in the U.S. government was working on the Iran sanctions team at the State Department. I worked on that file through uh, the Joint Plan of Action, which was the interim Iran nuclear deal at the end of 2013. Mm. And then in 2014, I became uh, the first uh, Russia and Europe sanctions lead at the State Department. I was part of the team that designed and negotiated the original sanctions on Russia after uh, Putin annexed Crimea oh, in wow. 2014. Wow. Uh, and you know, ever since, I've really been trying to make sense of that experience, trying to build uh, lessons learned, think through how sanctions and other economic tools can be used more effectively. And that's a big focus of the work I do at CNAS, as well as my teaching um, at Columbia University, where 
uh, I lead a class on economic and financial statecraft. Well, you've got some really relevant experience then, which is why I invited you on the podcast, including, as you said, going back to 2014 and the sanctions that were put in place in the wake of Russia's aggression against Ukraine back then. Uh, that means you know that makes your perspective, I think, a really useful one uh, as we talk about sanctions implemented since the invasion in February, which is is going to be mostly the focus of this conversation. Although, as we were talking offline, I told you I really want to kind of talk this subject on two uh, levels. First, sort of conceptually, and then and then second, to really add flavor to that conceptual discussion, you know, kind of honing in on the practical aspects of 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 the case in Russia uh, of the Russia sanctions right now. So to begin, I'd like to ask a question that, you know, it's a, it's kind of a broad one and, and maybe it'll sound a bit like a stupid one, uh, but I do think it's important. Uh, it's a useful one to kind of frame the examination of this topic. And that is, how do policymakers think about the purpose of sanctions? You know, on one hand, deterrence is an obvious answer. Um, on another, there's, there's, there's punishment. My suspicion is that it's, it's a little of column A, a little of column B. Uh, and maybe some of column C and D that you can that you can describe. Um, you know, put another way, if sanctions are a tool in policymakers' toolbox, what's the job that comes up that makes them sort of tempted to reach for that particular tool? Uh, you know, at the risk of extending an analogy much farther than I probably should, is it better? Is it better to think of sanctions sort of like a Phillips head screwdriver where there's one clear job that it's obviously optimized for? Or is it seen as kind of a, you know, a Leatherman or a Gerber multi-tool that can sort of do all kinds of things? Well, thanks, John. Um, That is anything but a stupid question, because I think kind of in the worst scenario, and and unfortunately, this has been the case um, a number of times uh, in modern history, the U.S. has sanctioned first and asked questions later. I think sanctions, because they're such an easy tool to deploy, especially relative to military force, um, they are often used um, without really a rigorous understanding of the specific goals that they're intended to achieve. So I think it's um, the most important thing. If there's one point I want to get across today, it's that you know, in order to design an effective economic statecraft strategy, the first and most important step is to really rigorously think through those objectives, because the types of tools that you use, the types of implementation and strategies you use will flow from those objectives. And um, hopefully as we get into the conversation today, um, we'll realize that there's really a lot of different ways that economic and financial statecraft can be deployed. It's definitely not a one size fits all solution. In terms of jobs to be done, um, I kind of categorize the objectives of sanctions um, in uh, sort of a, a four part categorization. Um, And it sort of starts with the easiest uh, objectives that you can achieve and and goes uh, toward the most difficult. So the first objective is what I call stigmatization. Uh, This, uh, when you're trying to use sanctions to stigmatize, you're really using them as punishment. It's to name and shame, to enforce a norm, to signal displeasure, potentially to discourage others from doing the type of behavior that you're punishing for. So for instance, the Magnitsky Act, which was you know, a piece of legislation passed uh, now more than a decade ago, which particularly focuses sanctions on gross human rights abuses. And that, I think the purpose of those sanctions is really to stigmatize that behavior, uh, full stop. It's not necessarily to change the behavior of the human rights abuser, it's to sig- stigmatize it. Uh, the second goal is what I call attrition. This um, is a little bit more complicated than stigmatization because 
you're actually trying to achieve a material objective. Um, in this instance, it would be, for instance, trying to degrade a foreign country's military capacity, perhaps its ability to produce oil or energy. We've used these types of sanctions against Russia, against um, North Korea, you know, if you're trying to deny access to sensitive nuclear materials. So similar to stigmatization, attrition also doesn't really involve change in behavior at all. Um, you have a concrete, ideally discrete, uh, material objective that you're using sanctions to try to advance. Um, then sort of going further along this spectrum of difficulty, you get into the two types of sanctions that really do actually have a psychological goal. They're trying to affect the policy calculus of the target. Uh, the first is deterrence, right? This would be using the threat of sanctions. So it's not necessarily sanctions themselves, but the threat of sanctions in the future to deter a target from taking an action that it otherwise would want to take. Um, you know, a classic example of this, you know, now classic because it's recent and so public, was President Biden's attempts to use the threat of severe consequences on Russia's economy to deter Putin from ordering an invasion of Ukraine. Um, and then the most difficult objective um, that sanctions are often used uh, to try to achieve is compellence. That would be you know, compelling a target to take an action, a proactive action that it otherwise would not want to take. Uh, you know, the reason that compellence is such a difficult objective is it often involves the adversary, you know, it often involves trying to force the adversary to undo a previous action, right? You're trying to dig out the adversary from an entrenched position. So an example here would be, you know, trying to use sanctions to push the Russians to give up its claim on Crimea, right? Which is, of course, very difficult for sanctions to achieve. That said, you know, probably the best example of sanctions success in recent memory is um, an example of, of compellence, which was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, in which Iran was sort of driving toward um, at least a threshold nuclear capacity, if not a full-blown nuclear weapons program. And sanctions were used successfully to um, persuade the Iranians, compel the Iranians to give up that program. Of course, that was reversed a few years later by President Trump's administration, but it did succeed through the JCPOA. You mentioned that, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm mischaracterizing what you said, but I believe you mentioned that it's sometimes perhaps uh, too tempting to turn to sanctions because they represent sort of an, an, an easier policy tool to use than alternatives, um, you know, not least easier than, say, you know, the alternative of using military force. Does that translate to an over-reliance on sanctions uh, in practice? Because, you know, the flip side, and by all means, set me straight if this is a misappreciation, but the flip side is that I think there are a lot of challenges to implementing sanctions effectively, and I'm sure we'll talk about about some of those challenges. That, uh, it seems to me, would, would be especially true when it means getting other countries on board, for instance. If that's the case, does that maybe warn policymakers off of implementing sanctions because the challenges are, are, are so daunting? Um, or are those both sort of misguided uh, questions? And the answer is that no sanctions are actually used about as frequently as uh, and under the conditions that they probably should be. No, I mean, look, sanctions um, have been used more in recent years than they have at any other point in American history. And this is um, you know, borne out in the data. You know, um, if you just look at 
American sanctions targets about 20 years ago, we had fewer than a thousand. And I think now we have, you know, significantly more than 10,000, right? So, um, you know, we, we've just objectively increased the number of entities targeted by sanctions in the last few decades. Um, there is a school of thought that the United States overuses sanctions, that, you know, we are too, you know, willy nilly in our use of sanctions. We should be really judicious in terms of when we use sanctions. Um, I think that's true to a certain extent. But I think some of the arguments that overuse of sanctions could lead to the fall of the dollar as the global reserve currency are overblown. So I don't want to um, double click on, on that specifically. I don't agree that overuse is the key problem with sanctions. I think the main problem is misuse. Um, what I mean by that is you know, using sanctions in a way that isn't defined by rigorous objectives and you know, persuasive theory of success or you know, a chain of causality that you at least um, hypothesize in advance. And I think a lot of this, you know, a lot of the pathologies of sanctions um, really are rooted in the fact that we don't have a robust policy infrastructure in place for executing sanctions. Um, it's certainly more robust than other countries have. So, you know, the United States um, is, is, you know, probably has the most sophisticated infrastructure for economic and financial sanctions of any country in the world, but it's still nothing compared with what the Pentagon has, for instance, for you know, military contingency planning. There's you know, not a defined group of individuals in the US government who are tasked with you know, coming up with concepts of operations for economic and financial sanctions. Uh, I think if we had that, you know, we could potentially address some of these problems with misuse of sanctions. You also mentioned these uh, four sort of broad categories uh, of the purpose of sanctions, two of which, deterrence and cabellance, are both sort of aimed at affecting the policy calculus, as I think how you put it, uh, of the target of the sanctions that immediately triggered this this connection in my brain. Part of my background uh, is in psychological operations, and U.S. Army PSYOP doctrine has a very rigorous methodology uh, for doing what it seeks to do, which is inducing behavioral change. That involves uh, defining a target audience and doing a target audience analysis, identifying vulnerabilities in that target audience, um, specifying the desired behavioral change, and then figuring out how to link the vulnerabilities to that change to, to, to exploit really those vulnerabilities and induce and induce the change. Is there sort of a similar, you know, clearly defined process that guides the implementation of sanctions, especially when you're talking about those those two categories that are oriented on affecting the policy calculus of the target? Now, the short answer is no. Uh, I think this is a gap both in um, the academic research and literature, and also in, as I said earlier, you know, policy infrastructure and just you know what the United States government is staffed to do. So I think you're you're pinpointing what I think is a key um, key weakness in the U.S. use of sanctions and one that could be addressed with the right um, funding and incentives. I want to kind of dig into uh, what you described earlier as a criticism of the U.S. approach to sanctions, and that's that essentially it's too quick to use them. Um, I think there's an interesting parallel uh, to maybe highlight there. The United States is a dominant military power, of course, and has been accused of military adventurism. I think those two things are naturally linked. Um, you know, military adventurism is is only something that really happens or can happen if you have the military resources to uh, to undertake it, um, you know, I don't, I don't think Suriname is likely to be accused of global military adventurism, and that's in no way intended to denigrate Suriname. Just, just to 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 illustrate the point. 
is U.S. economic power then similarly sort of also something that lends itself toward using sanctions or encourages it? Would a country with an economy that is maybe less dominant be uh, either less likely or less able to implement sanctions, a broad-based sanctions regime? And if so, I think, you know, it's probably obvious where I'm going with this. As U.S. economic power shrinks relative to competitors, is that going to reduce the U.S. ability to use sanctions as a tool of statecraft? Sure. A lot of great questions embedded there. Uh, you know, I think the United States is able to use economic and financial sanctions um, and is, um, you know, I think compelled to use them or, or feels the need to use them so frequently, largely because of its position as the world's dominant economic and financial power. So I think your your point in you know comparison with military force is well taken. Um, you could argue though that in terms of uh, in sort of the economic realm, the United States possesses you know potentially even more kind of asymmetric leverage than it does in the military realm. Uh, and I think that's an important point. You know, pretty much any time that the United States uses sanctions against a target, it possesses escalation dominance. You know, for any um, sanctions action that the United States takes, there's not really much of a concern about symmetric retaliation, even against a country like Russia, that is a, you know, by all by all means, a relatively sizable economic player, you know, a major commodities exporter. Um, you know, the concern in terms of imposing sanctions on Russia was never that, you know, Russia would impose devastating sanctions on the United States. That that was never a concern. You're more concerned, I think, around um, you know, maybe unintended consequences of U.S. sanctions or asymmetric retaliation, be it in the cyber realm or, or other sort of forms of power. So I think that um, your comparison there is apt. Um, you had a second question about U.S. Um, economic power eroding in the coming years. Uh, I think that, you know, it depends how you measure it, right? I, I think um, certainly um, the United States' relative economic power um, has declined in certain areas, but not not in all, right? I mean, our share of global GDP is about the same today as it was in 1980. Um, so what we've really seen is um, American America's allies' share of global GDP has declined, right? So China has sort of ascended at, at largely at the expense of Europe and Japan. And so you could still argue that, you know, America and its allies sort of more broadly speaking um, are kind of declining in a relative sense economically, but right? it's not necessarily the case that the U.S. is. And in the ways that are most important for sanctions, um, the U.S. actually um, has grown stronger uh, in recent decades, and that's because uh, you know sanctions really depend. U.S. sanctions depend primarily on the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar's role as the global reserve currency, really the you know circulatory system of the global economy um, has, if anything, only gotten stronger in recent years. Uh, and we can get into this, but you know, basically the way the United States is able to project power through sanctions is through you know, selectively denying access to the US dollar, US-based financial infrastructure, which you know, effectively can eject you know, or uh, eject its target from the global economy as such. And we've seen that deployed against Russia in recent months. I want to ask maybe one or two more broad-based kind of conceptual questions before we really get into the weeds uh, a little more about the current case of sanctions against Russia. You talked about these four categories of sanctions in terms of their purpose. Uh, are there categories 
uh, can sanctions sort of be categorized by type in terms of the the you know the the target? Uh, well, I guess what I mean by that is we hear about sanctions against individuals. We hear about sanctions aimed at companies or particular business sectors. Is there a meaningful difference in terms of mechanics between those, or uh, you know, or is it really just about cutting off X from the global financial and and business ecosystem, if you will, and it doesn't really matter whether X is uh, you know, a family member of a president or, or a country's entire steel industry? Yeah, look, so um, the, the, the American president has pretty, a pretty significant authority, almost limitless authority under the 1977 International Emergency Economic Powers Act to deny foreign um, individuals, companies, even whole industries from, you know, access to the U.S. financial system and economy. Um, when this law was passed, you know, there was actually a belief that the president wouldn't use this authority much because it requires the president to first declare that there is a national emergency that necessitates the use of this extraordinary power to really deny um, any sort of foreign individual company or industry from U.S. economy. Um, but what's wound up, wound up actually happening is that it has become almost a routine exercise for the president to declare these national emergencies. We have, I think, almost 30, if not more than 30 in place now. So, um, you know, there are probably national emergencies going on that most listeners of this podcast wouldn't even, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't even consider national emergencies or may not even be aware of. Uh, in terms of individual sanctions versus sanctions on companies or, or full industries, um, again, I would tie that back to the objective of the sanctions, right? If your objective is stigmatization, you're usually trying to stigmatize a specific behavior, right? So um, it tends to be targeting individuals. Could be human rights abusers. It could be oligarchs that you're trying to stigmatize for corrupt practices, which is a more recent use of sanctions that we've seen. Uh, when we're talking about attrition, um, normally we're going to see sanctions that are targeted more at companies, you know, it could be major companies in the Russian defense sector, in the nuclear sector of a, of a country like Iran or North Korea, it could be full industry. Um, and then when you're moving, um, again, up this ladder toward deterrence and compellence, um, you know, more times than not, you're, you're talking about combined uh, sanction strategies, right? You're using sanctions against individuals, against companies, against industries. And this really all comes down to your analysis of the target itself, understanding what pressure points you need to push to actually have a chance of affecting the policy calculus of the target. So in the Russia case, you know the, the sanctions against Putin's inner circle, uh, the theory of the case behind those for many is that you know the, there's only a, a limited number of individuals who have aligned to Putin and direct influence over him. And while as individuals, uh, they may not you know, individually have much power of a, over Putin, if you target all of them sort of as a class, and we've seen you know, much broader sanctions against you know, the Siloviki as well as Russian oligarchs in the last few months, that perhaps um, their quality of life would be denigrated to a, such an extent that they may try to weigh in with Putin and change his policy or potentially even apply pressure to the Kremlin and you know, seek his ouster. Uh, then, of course, 
you know, the economic sanctions against, you know, large sectors of Russian, the Russian economy, the financial sector being the main sector that's been targeted, uh, the energy sector being one that, you know, has been targeted more in, in the last few weeks. And I think um, a trend that we'll see continue moving forward. And the goal there is really to impose broad-based economic harm on Russia um, with the goal of, you know, having that translate into a change in policy calculus, right? That would be, you know, um, you know, based on an analysis that actually, you know, the best way to affect Putin is to threaten, you know, uh, economic dislocation and pressure from below. I'd say where we stand now, unfortunately, neither of these theories of, um, you know, theories of psychological impact seem to be bearing out. So we're left with, I'd say more limited goals on sanctions uh, with Russia, with respect to Russia, specifically attrition and stigmatization. So, um, you know, I, I want to transition now to talking a little bit more specifically about Russia. We've obviously touched on it a little bit. It's difficult uh, right now to talk about sanctions and not talk about to talk about Russia. But with respect to these specific sanctions, I want to kind of shift our attention and get into the weeds a little bit. You authored a report uh, along with a couple of colleagues that CNAS published, I think, about exactly a week before the invasion. Uh, the report sort of describes some of the sanctions that the United States uh, and I believe its allies expressed a willingness to implement if Russia did in fact invade. If the purpose of those threats, um, such as they were, was was to deter an invasion, can we call that a failure or is that inaccurate? I think it's very clear that the Biden administration tried to use the threat of sanctions in January and February to deter Putin from ordering an invasion of Ukraine. And so I think it's fair to say that deterrence failed, that the, the first goal of sanctions, which was, again, not imposing them, right? It was the threat of imposing them in, in the future uh, failed to deter Putin from ordering an invasion. And I think it's important for us to not mince words and be clear about that, right? It doesn't mean that the strategy was necessarily ill-conceived, right? And we can get into that. Um, but I think um, acknowledging that we tried to use sanctions as a deterrent and failed is the first step we have to take to doing better next time. So, so yes, I, I do think it was a failure. Um, I'd like to dig into this, though, because you know, I've been writing about the possibility of using sanctions as a deterrent for years, ever since I left government in 2017. And that's because in 2014, we did see evidence that the threat of sanctions was affecting Putin's calculus in sort of the first Ukraine invasion. You know, he started out with this Novo Russia project of potentially swallowing up half of Ukraine's territory. And when we started imposing the sectoral sanctions in the summer of 2014 and making very explicit threats about what was to come if Putin continued on his path, we saw pretty quickly the signing of the Minsk Protocols, which throws the conflict in place uh, for, for all intents and purposes. So I think we saw a glimmer of hope in 2014 that the threat of sanctions could be used effectively as a deterrent. And this would be incredibly important from the perspective of US national security policy writ large, because you know, a major issue we've contended with over the last decade is how do we deter US adversaries in this gray zone between war and peace? If China or Russia or other countries Iran are going to be doing things 
that run counter to U.S. interests, but don't rise to the level of a military response, how can we deter them? Uh, so my argument is that in order to use sanctions as a deterrent, you need the adversary or the target of sanctions to perceive both your capability and your will to use that capability, right? It's not enough to have just capability or just will, you need the combination of the two. And so if we're looking at why sanctions failed to deter Putin in February of 2022, you know, I think we should look at those two variables. You know, did Putin doubt US capability? Possibly, right? I think you know, we did impose sanctions on Russia in 2014. Those sanctions had very significant impact on Russia's economy. They led to a GDP contraction of more than 2%. as a significant recession in Russia. Uh, they um, effectively nullified Russia, Russia's economic growth in the years to come, right? They set Russia back significantly. But ultimately, Russia adapted to the sanctions, and they weren't really a long-term irritant to the Putin regime. So it's possible that Putin could have under, uh, you know, sort of underestimated our capabilities with sanctions. I think more likely, um, you know, Putin doubted the will of the West to levy devastating sanctions on Russia. And he would have good reason to doubt that will. Uh, in April of 2018, uh, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on a large Russian aluminum company called Rusal. Uh, this was, the, at the time, the largest uh, Russian company that had been targeted with full blocking sanctions. So these are the sanctions that would fully sever a target from the U.S. financial system. And within days of these sanctions going into effect, world aluminum prices spiked about 10%. Uh, you know, Rusal itself, its stock completely collapsed and, you know, was... Uh, at risk of potentially going under. And the Trump administration unilaterally pulled back the sanctions. So they, they basically waived the sanctions immediately when they realized that aluminum prices were going up and that this could affect, uh, you know, affect U.S. companies, affect U.S. consumers. And so I think if, if you're Putin in that scenario, your assessment is the U.S. doesn't have the stomach for hard-hitting economic penalties. Right. So, and this was under the Trump administration, who you know didn't always shy away from, you know, using sanctions in a maximum pressure type of a way. So I think, you know, that experience coupled with probably an assessment that the Biden administration would be very um, committed to staying united with Europe, and an assessment that the European Union would never go for aggressive sanctions because of its dependence on Russian oil and gas, probably made Putin underestimate the West's will to use its capabilities in the sanctions realm. And there's a fair, there's an argument out there that Putin never could have been deterred by sanctions, right? And we, it's not even worth going into this analysis because he was, you know, he was uh, gung-ho on invading Ukraine and sanctions could have never deterred him. And that, you know, uh, I guess my response to that is, well, that might be the case, but he certainly did not anticipate, certainly did not anticipate sanctions of the magnitude that went into effect just days after his invasion. And the best evidence of that is that the Central Bank of Russia, which Putin, you know, directly sort of, you know, had guided toward 
accumulating massive foreign exchange reserves in order to sanctions-proof Russia's economy. You know, it accumulated more than $600 billion worth of reserves. About two-thirds of those reserves were denominated in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen. So you know, Putin left two-thirds of his war chest completely vulnerable and exposed to sanctions. I think had Putin thought that it was likely that the West would go after the central bank directly, there's no way he would have had his foreign currency reserves um, deployed in that fashion. Hmm. You know, I'm struck by uh, what you said about Putin underestimating U.S. resolve to put sanctions in place and to keep them in place, uh, even if it means sort of a consequent economic hit that Americans will feel. Um, you know, uh, among his many miscalculations, this seems to be seems to be one of them. Another aspect of that uh, in this particular case is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm overstating the importance of this, but another aspect is the importance of, I guess, cohesion and mutual commitment among a group of states uh, in order for sanctions to have maximum impact, uh, especially in the case of Russia, where arguably the best way to sort of really dial up the effects of sanctions is to target the sector that Russia is incredibly dependent on, which is oil and gas exports. But because because Europe, several European countries in particular, are highly dependent on oil and gas supplies from Russia, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if Putin said, look, I'm going to call your bluff. And I don't think these European governments are going to allow oil and gas prices to skyrocket. How much of that was a was a factor here? I it was definitely a factor. I think that Putin um, did not believe that the European Union would go as far as it as it was willing to go. And I think this was a major weakness of the deterrent strategy writ large, because you know, in, in some sense, the, the West had um, some fortune when it came to the early warning that their intelligence agencies had of the Putin's intent to invade Ukraine, because dating back to you know, the third and fourth quarters of 2021, the US and Europe were talking regularly and sort of coordinating sanctions policies that could go into a place if Putin decided to invade. And that is completely abnormal, right? We, we almost never see that. We never see um, you know, the US government internally, let alone the US government plus allies in the G7 and the European Union working on contingency planning for sanctions. And I think a lot of the credit for this goes to the intelligence community for getting this early warning, and then the Biden administration for, you know, kind of reconvening the G7 plus sanctions contact group that we created in 2014, and really um, inspiring it to work on a menu of sanctions options that came in handy in February, uh, when Putin did invade. So, um, you know, in some, in some sense, we had some good fortune. But I think, um, unfortunately, because we don't have you know, a formal alliance-based infrastructure around sanctions the way we do have with NATO and Article 5, um, you know, and, and, and just a lot of other examples within the military domain, you know, we were kind of left with these non-specific threats that President Biden and other leaders levied against Putin saying, you know, I think swift and severe consequences would go into effect if, if Russia invaded. Um, and then there, of course, there was no automaticity about anything, right? There was no, um, you know, you had no, um, nothing guaranteeing that 
um, those consequences would go into place if Putin, you know, crossed America and Europe's red line. And I think that those weaknesses, right, kind of the the lack of specificity about the response, as well as uh, the lack of automaticity, are things that could have been rectified with, you know, more formal infrastructure, with, you know, um, more formal declarations, more specific declarations, potentially in the U.S. case with, you know, a legislative mandate. And, you know, Congress was working on some legislation before the invasion um, that would have kind of created a explicit tripwire for the implementation of sanctions. And Congress, unfortunately, never was able to get that legislation across the finish line. And I do wonder, I'm left wondering, had there been you know, more of those features, right, the specificity and automaticity, maybe the deterrence threat would have had um, combined the capability and will um, that was needed to actually change Putin's calculus. And I think that's kind of the homework we have now moving forward. How can we use sanctions better as a deterrent? Um, there's a lot of lessons learned from this case. I think a big one is, you know, we need to go beyond unspecific threats by leaders like President Biden. You know, it's sometimes easy to look backward and see things that unfolded as having this sort of inevitable quality uh, in retrospect, but that's not always the case. In the moment, uh, there's often a great deal of uncertainty. I think a good example of this uh, can be seen sort of in terms of the military support Ukraine has received. About two weeks, I believe, before the invasion, um, there were already large numbers of Russian troops in the areas along the Ukrainian border. The threat, you know, was real at this point. I recorded a podcast with Ulrika Franke of the European Council on Foreign Relations. We talked about Germany, specifically German, you know, hesitance to lend meaningful military assistance to Ukraine. You fast forward just a few weeks to after the invasion, and, and I think what we saw was a real sea change in German policy. Uh, it did begin to provide assistance and stopped, uh, and this is key, I think, stopped blocking third-party countries from providing German-made weapons and equipment to Ukraine. And I don't think that can be overstated. This is a huge departure from from some pretty long-standing traditions of German defense and foreign policy. Certainly not something that I think we could have confidently predicted as inevitable. If we turn to the sanctions front, you know, after the invasion, we saw initial sanctions applied, and then and then sort of progressively and 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 pretty rapidly, they were stepped up and up and up. And you know, maybe again in retrospect, from our vantage point, three plus months on, that looks inevitable. But I'm not sure, and I guess I kind of want to ask you if it was, because, you know, on February 24th, when Russia invaded, you know, you as somebody who looks at this closely, you know, to you, was it a foregone conclusion that there would be this level of unanimity and, 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 and commitment to doing some pretty difficult things sometimes from, from a sanctions policy perspective, uh, both from the U.S. and from allies and partners? Or was there a chance that, you know, we were just not going to be able to ramp up pressure in the way that we have? So... Um, you know, sometimes one of the difficulties of making predictions is, you know, uh, you make them and you sort of have to live by them, right? They're written. And uh, if if you're right, you can celebrate. If you're wrong, you know, you look like a fool. I mean, in this case, you know, I was one of kind of the lonely voices uh, dating back in January and, and February saying that if Putin were to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that we would be on a conveyor belt to Iran-style sanctions, that we would be heading toward the type of draconian measures that the U.S. had imposed on Iran, including sanctions on the central bank, as well as sanctions on energy exports. But I was a lonely voice there. I think that that was a non-consensus opinion at the time. Um, 
So I don't think it was foreseeable. And, and I, I would say that was a, a prediction I made that I was confident in based on my own experience, but you know, I, I wasn't hundred percent sure, right? I could have been wrong. So I think that you're, you're pinpointing a, an important point here in that um, when the magnitude of Russia's war aims, as well as the um, just sheer inhumanity of its tactics came to light, the realm of political possibility, the Overton window in Europe specifically, but also in the United States, shifted rapidly, right? Because if you remember, I believe Putin gave his war speech and within the next couple of days, the United States imposed sanctions that included you know, the second largest bank in Russia, VTB, um, as well as a large Russian development bank called VEB. Uh, but they didn't, you know, these were still relatively modest sanctions that came into effect in the first couple of days of the war. It really wasn't until this became, you know, 24-7 focus of the news in both the U.S. and Europe, you know, maybe four or five, six days after the invasion started, that leaders realized, oh, wow, you know, we really need to meet this moment with much more aggressive measures. Uh, you know, the White House wasn't even sure that they were going to go after VTB, you know, second largest bank in Russia. Um, and then, you know, a week into the war, they had sanctioned the Central Bank of Russia, which is by any measure, the largest sanctions target in modern history, with $640 billion worth of assets. You know, by comparison, I think at its height in 2012, the Iranian economy, the entire GDP of Iran was just shy of $600 billion. So the Central Bank of Russia really is a target, a sanctions target of unprecedented magnitude, at least, uh, you know, in modern, modern times. So um, I think your point is, is well taken, John, that, you know, the best that policymakers could do before the invasion actually happened was come up with a menu of sanctions, right? And that's what policymakers have been working on uh, in the latter part of 2021, as well as early 2022, was coming up with a menu that they could put in front of leaders like President Biden, Chancellor Schultz, et cetera, when Putin made that decision. What I'm arguing for is that we need to do better than that next time. We need more than just a menu um, if we're really trying to use sanctions as a deterrent, we need to be very specific about the types of consequences that will go into effect if an adversary crosses our red lines. Is there a risk that if this conflict goes on uh, and on and on for an extended period, is there a risk of, of weakening commitment to, uh, to the sanctions regime? Of course. Uh, I do believe there is. Um, that said, historically... Um, and, you know, there's, there have been concerns about, you know, this idea of sanctions fatigue, right? Where um, governments after a while say, why are we still doing these sanctions, right? This is a, a theoretical problem, but it's not one that I've actually seen in my experience. So it's one, of these, it's one of these notions that you hear about a lot, but you almost never see in practice. And I think there's actually a, a, a almost logical and practical reason for this. It's that, you know, the on ourselves, right, on the US economy, on European economies, the blowback incurred by sanctions is most acute right away, right? It's, it's the breaking of bonds, the breaking of ties, it's divestments from businesses, it's closing offices, um, you know, uh, terminating large, large numbers of employees, you know, losing markets for exports. Those are really painful 
decisions that businesses have to endure. But at this point, businesses have endured them, right? And they're now kind of, you know, pivoting their their operations, pivoting their businesses to other markets, to other opportunities, and they're kind of writing off Russia as a market for them moving forward. So in my experience, sanctions fatigue actually is um, almost 100% wrong, where it's usually that, you know, the, um, the burden of imposing sanctions, at least on businesses at sort of a microeconomic level, um, becomes easier over time because, you know, they've already pivoted their oper- operations. And, and really, the prospect of easing sanctions on Russia, you know, for businesses that, that may be seen as like a, an opportunity, but it's not really, you know, oh, I'm suffering so much, you need to ease sanctions on Russia. So um, I'm not super worried about this. I think that it's, you know, it is a concern, especially with, you know, the rise of populist politics in Europe and the US. You know, it's always possible that you have a leader, you know, kind of run on a platform that these sanctions have somehow hurt uh, our people and we need to reverse them. Um, But I, I consider that a bit of a tail event. So I think my base case scenario is that these sanctions are going to be in place for a long time, at least as long as Putin is in power, potentially even longer. Um, you know, I'd say I've almost never seen a U.S. sanctions program end too early, right? I mean, look at the Cuba sanctions, right? I mean, they've been in place for decades with little to show for it. Mm. Um, so I, I think, and by the way, that's that's the norm, right? That's not an exception. So I do think these sanctions will be in place for a long time. Um, you know, even I think if the Europeans in some way were to break ranks, which I don't think is going to happen, we can get into that more. But I, I've always thought that the idea that the EU would sort of unilaterally go soft on sanctions is um, very unlikely. But even if they were, uh, an important point about multilateralism is that it is most important as um, sort of a a signaling mechanism and sort of a diplomatic tool. Um, It's actually not important from a practical economic standpoint because of, again, the centrality of the US financial system, the US dollar, US financial infrastructure, Unilateral U.S. sanctions are enough to impose really devastating economic consequences. And the best evidence of that, of course, is the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy against Iran, unilaterally pulling out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And, um, you know, the economic consequences on Iran were just immense, right? I mean, their oil exports effectively went almost to zero, you know, to a couple hundred thousand barrels of exports per day. So the U.S. does possess a tremendous amount of unilateral power in the economic and financial realms. Mm. You know, at the risk of, of drastically oversimplifying this, if we sort of conceptualize sanctions as, as, as a kind of spectrum and at one extreme end, you've got, you know, no sanctions in place at all. It's business as usual. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's, you know, the absolute maximum amount of economic pressure that can be applied. Every sanction imaginable is in place. Uh, you know, it strikes me that this is kind of an iterative process of ramping up more and more pressure. So if that's the case, where are we at on that on that spectrum? Yeah, it's a great question, because, you know, I think there's been a lot of rhetoric about the unprecedented nature of the sanctions on Russia. And I think this has confused people into thinking that the sanctions are already comprehensive or that there's no way to ratchet them up further, which is, is just false, right? So the way I kind of think of it is, you know, the sanctions that we imposed in 2014 that I was involved in were about a two out of 10 in the intensity scale, you know, 10 being kind of the most comprehensive sanctions, zero being no sanctions at all. 
you know, I think right now we're somewhere around an eight, eight and a half out of 10. Okay. Uh, that's not to say that, uh, that's not to say that, that additional, you know, two, one and a half to, uh, two points on the scale, um, is, is small because, um, there's a lot of business activity between the U S and Russia that still is not prohibited, right. That can go on. I think it's more of in terms of the important things, right. So the biggest, um, element now left out of sanctions is a global strategy against Russia's oil and gas exports. Um, we kind of see that emerging um, slower, I think, than many of us hoped, but it is coming, right? The European Union did just announce um, in recent weeks an embargo on Russian oil exports to Europe. Um, we do know that the U.S. government, as Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen has said publicly just today, is working on globalizing this policy through mechanisms such as a price cap or requiring uh, payments for Russian oil to go into escrow accounts. So I think we will eventually get to that 10 out of 10. And I would say Iran is effectively a 10 out of 10. There's not much more uh, that could have been added to the Iran sanctions. You know, you could, you know, maybe on the margins, maybe there's a 9.8 out of 10 or something. Uh, so there, there's more that could be done against Russia. Many of the important things have already been done. The biggest element left out of the sanctions is, you know, just a fully comprehensive global strategy against Russia's oil and gas sales. Can you uh, can you kind of paint a picture of what this looks like in practice? You know, the the White House makes a decision, announces a set of sanctions, um, and then what? Right. So this is, I mean, one of the complexities of sanctions is that, you know, the, the pointy end of the spear, the infantry, uh, the infantry men and women sort of, of sanctions are not U.S. government employees, right? They are compliance officers at banks and companies. Uh, the way that sanctions work is, you know, the U.S., determines what is allowed, what isn't allowed. Uh, and then it's really up to individual companies, banks to determine what they're going to do, right? They can play right up against the line, sometimes cross the line and sort of dare U.S. prosecutors and U.S. regulatory authorities to punish them or to impose fines. I think you've seen a little bit less of that in recent years because there is this track record of just major fines that have been levied against international banks, including uh, a $9 billion fine, that's billion with a B, against BNP Paribas um, in 2014, 2015, that was levied. So, um, you know, but what we can't do is we can't tell companies what they should do, right? So sometimes, you know, we've seen this in the Russia case, you know, sometimes there are uh, business activities that are totally allowed, right? They're not under the scope of sanctions, but US companies will just determine that it's not worth the risk anymore. Be that because the, the, the activity could be prohibited in the future or there's a reputational concern. And that's why we've seen more than a thousand major multinational companies exit Russia, including you know, brand names like you know, McDonald's, Amazon, um, Anheuser-Busch, you know, many, many of whose activities probably could continue in Russia, um, you know, they've still decided to leave. So if you're a Russian, company that is doing business with, you know, counterparties in the West, you know, I think first and foremost, you're, you're losing that access, whether you're selling to them or buying from them. And I think um, both ways are important, right? It's not just exports. I think um, the data from March shows that Russia's imports of manufactured goods have decreased by half, right? I mean, that, that wow. is just a mammoth decline in imports. And what that will mean is, you know, we're going to start seeing very significant significant slowdowns in 
in industrial production, manufactured uh, production in Russia, probably in the second half of this year, which will lead to significant layoffs um, and sort of microeconomic instability. Um, but then I think from a financial perspective, you know, if you are the CEO of a Russian company who has been sanctioned directly, uh, you have lost your access to the US financial system. You, if you have any assets that are um, you know, outside of your country, you're probably unable to access them, right? It's not just in, in dollars, but probably if you have you know, either um, deposits and euros or yen or any other major international currency, you probably cannot use them because banks will judge it too risky to deal with you. Uh, you won't be able to pay in dollars or euros or other international currencies or be paid in them. You won't be able to access financial markets if you are dependent on debt. You won't be able to access that. If you have outstanding debts, you won't be able to pay interest on them. Um, so, I mean, the consequences are, are pretty dramatic and they can, again, lead to um, failure, right? They can lead to bankruptcy, going out of business. And oftentimes the Russian sovereign has to step in if they want to defend the company. How easy are broad-based, comprehensive sanctions regimes to unwind? And, and you know, if Russia said, okay, this pressure is too much and they pulled forces out of Ukraine uh, tomorrow and sanctions are removed, how long do the effects last? It's a great question, again, because, you know, again, we can tell businesses what they can't do, but we can't tell them what they should do, right? Or what they, what they must do, certainly not, right? So, of course, it's possible that if sanctions were unwound sometime in the coming months, that um, the stain of sanctions would last well beyond that. And many companies would determine it's just too risky to go back into Russia. Certainly, I think for um, companies that had staked a big part of their future or their operations on Russia, um, I'd be very surprised if similar bets are made um, in the future, absent really a fundamental shift in Russia's international posture, its relations with uh, the United States and its allies. So I do think that even in, in this sort of positive scenario in which you know, Russia completely ends the war in Ukraine and uh, you know, re-enters you know, uh, re sort of the global economy through sanctions relief, I don't know if you would see a rush of business back to Russia. Certainly you'd see some uh, you know, fortune seekers um, trying to you know, engage in speculative ventures. But, you know, we saw a bit of this in uh, the aftermath of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA in 2015. You know, um, there wasn't, you know, this on, you know, sort of mad rush into the Iranian economy. And I know the Iranian government was frustrated that it wasn't getting uh, the relief that, uh, you know, thought that it you know, was going to get from sanctions. And that's because, again, the U.S. government can't tell businesses what they should do. But I, I want to stress, though, John, that we're happy to engage in these theoreticals. I think it's very unlikely that these sanctions are are, are eased, right? And I think it's just important to, to be straight about that because I get questions sometimes, you know, is there a deal to be struck where Russia allows grain exports out of the out of Ukraine through the Black Sea in exchange for sanctions relief? Or maybe Russia says, you know, we're not gonna do, you know, we're not gonna um, advance further into Ukraine unless, or in, and then you'll, Ease sanctions. I don't. I don't see any of that happening, right? I don't think sanctions easing is on the table right now. Maybe in a future state, um, if Putin really fundamentally changes his perspective and is ready to, you know, cut a deal that is suitable to the Zelensky government and they feel good about, maybe then some sanctions easing would be on the table. But again, I, I just don't see that happening 
anytime soon. And it doesn't give me any pleasure to say that, but um, I think it's important to be realistic about the sanctions today and the fact that they really aren't aimed primarily at psychological impact on Putin. They're not trying to make Putin wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, this adventure in Ukraine was a bad idea. Let's kind of deal with Zelensky. Uh, I think that's just beyond the capacity of sanctions at this juncture. So we're really talking about principally attrition, you know, de degrading Russia's capacity to do harm. Your Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, said that a goal was weakening Russia. I know he got some criticism for that, but I think it's true, right? And that's definitely a goal of sanctions. And you know, it's to force Putin to make much harder choices about how to use Russia's resources, whether you know he should use them for military adventures or perhaps paying pensions and government employees. And I think those hard choices are what sanctions will force Putin to make in the months and years to come. Well, to sort of wrap up, I'm cognizant that we've been recording for quite a while. So, uh, so I just want to ask you maybe one final question. Presumably, we will learn something uh, about the effectiveness and the limitations of sanctions from uh, from this particular case of, of of the sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. In the future, I'm sure there there will be some some really interesting case studies written about it. I won't ask you to kind of project forward to that time when we will, of course, have uh, a lot more information about how all of this plays out. But if we can kind of take a snapshot right now, is there anything we've learned about sanctions over the past hundred and some odd days? I think this is a great question. I'm glad to end on it because I want to encourage listeners of this podcast to engage in this work because this is, uh, without question, uh, the most important and most high-level use of economic statecraft and sanctions in modern history. And we need to learn from it because this is a tool that has become arguably America's principal tool that it uses uh, to advance its, its foreign policy goals, you know, right alongside military force. So we, we need to try to dissect uh, these experiences and derive lesson learned. So I think right now, you know, if I had to, if I was sort of forced to, because we're so early in you know, early innings, I would say there are probably about three core lessons I have uh, that I can think of. The first um, which I think is a positive lesson. It's one that, you know, this is something we should always be doing, we should be repeating, is that advanced planning, that, you know, contingency planning is essential when it comes to economic sanctions, right? As we discussed throughout this interview, you know, sanctions are a complex tool, right? They're not implemented at sort of the pointy end of the spear by the U.S. government. They're implemented by compliance officers at banks and companies, by individual CEOs, you know, by, by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of individual actors who are making decisions based on sanctions. So they're a very complex tool. And without advanced planning, you're almost always going to move too slowly and not be ready. And I think, you know, unfortunately, if I want to use a negative example that I was involved in, you know, uh, Russia annexes Crimea in March of 2014, and we don't get our act together to impose sectoral sanctions until July, right? There's a four-month gap. And a lot of that is because we didn't have off-the-shelf plans that were vetted menus of sanctions options that we could impose on Russia um, if it did something like annex Crimea. I think what we saw in this, in this context of the current invasion of, U of Ukraine, because the intelligence community had advanced warning, because you know, the United States reconvened the G7 plus Russia sanctions contact group that we originally created in 2014. You know, there was this advanced planning that enabled really rapid deployment of, of aggressive sanctions after Putin invaded, right? 
you saw sanctions against the Central Bank of Russia just days into into the war, which many, um, you know, I think surprised many that we would go that quickly. So that's one positive lesson, you know, advanced planning, let's do more of it. I think a negative lesson comes from our previous discussion of the failure of deterrence. Um, this was definitely the highest level example we've seen of the United States and its allies trying to use the threat of sanctions to deter a foreign adversary, and it failed. And we need to be honest about that. We need to dissect why it failed, try to understand, and then for next time, learn from those mistakes. Perhaps the next time we use we try to use sanctions as a deterrent, we need to be more specific about the consequences and the triggers um, that will sort of lead to those consequences. And we need to impose um, infrastructure that make those consequences automatic. And thankfully, because sanctions are ultimately enshrined in law, this is something we can do through legislation, right? You can, you could have um, U.S. law stating that if Russia were to take a specific action, that these specific consequences would immediately go into place. So that is something that's potentially fixable. Um, so that's that's kind of my second lesson, and then the final, more general lesson is is one of, I think, potentially some optimism, which is that the United States should feel confident in using sanctions. Uh, you know, a big reason in, in 2014 that we were reluctant from, you know, targeting the biggest companies and banks in Russia was this fear of financial contagion, fear of, you know, sparking another financial crisis in Europe, potentially a, a, a meltdown of the international financial system. And I think part of this was, you know, we were all still traumatized from the, you know, uh, great financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis, you know, in the wake of, of that, I think we were all very nervous. And there was a lot of hesitancy about targeting the largest banks and companies in Russia. And what we've seen this time is that the United States has imposed full blocking sanctions on Sparebank, which is the largest bank in Russia, on BTB, the second largest bank in Russia. They've imposed sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia. And we have not seen some sort of global financial meltdown, right? We've, we've seen significant impacts in Russia and really limited impacts on the US and European financial systems. So I think what this tells us is that we can feel confident in imposing sanctions even on large integrated actors uh, such as big Russian banks and companies. And I think that that's an important lesson moving forward that we don't need to be so gun shy um, even when we're using sanctions against uh, major powers. Well, I think that is a great set of um, you know concluding thoughts to uh, to end with. I will also highlight your your sort of appeal to anybody who's interested in in studying this going forward. As you said, there's uh, I'm sure there's a lot that we will we will likely learn from this particular case. And and so if any listener gets accepted to a PhD program with with this as their research proposal, they can uh, they can send you a note of thanks. Yes, for the for the for the nudge in that direction. Please, and more the more more people studying sanctions, the better. That's a big reason why I decided to design and teach this class at Columbia. Well, thank you again for making some time to uh, to talk about this. Um, you know, it, it really is a fascinating subject for me, and uh, and I trust listeners will appreciate the opportunity to to hear your perspective. Thanks so much for having me on, John. I really enjoyed the discussion. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app, 
If you're enjoying it, please give it a rating or leave a review. It really does help us to reach new listeners. Thanks again. Thank you.